Chapter 13 of Zofloya. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Zofloya by Charlotte Dacre. Chapter 13. At an early hour the following morning, Leonardo awakened and immediately repaired to the garden to enter upon his self-allotted task. While in the mansion of Zappi, he had obtained considerable knowledge with respect to gardening, from having, at leisure hours, resorted to it as an amusement. Signor Zappi, likewise, felt pleasure in giving him instructions, because he himself passed much of his time in botanizing, in planting, and trying various experiments upon the fecund earth. The young Leonardo had additional motives to strengthen his perseverance, for he felt, though he should in reality reap the benefits of his own exertions, that he laid himself under no obligations to be again, bitter reflection, reproached with them. He repaid by the service he rendered, the benefit he received. His proud heart was therefore at rest, and his spirit became even buoyant with pleasing anticipations that banished for a time the recollection of his real woes. Woes no less real, because his peculiar sentiments, whether romantic or otherwise, induced him to prefer their pressure to the ease and splendor which he would have deemed disgrace and infamy. Nothing assuredly calms the mind like a settled purpose. Leonardo had determined to persevere, while circumstances should render it expedient, in a course of labor and activity. Each successive day brought with it lighter, because more, habitual toil, with an increase of pleasure to his heart, in the conviction of being no idle member of society. In his knowledge superior to that of Hugo, the poor Nina soon discerned a multiplied advantage. Everything flourished beneath his fostering hand and excellent arrangement. His mind, warm and enthusiastic, slackened not in the pursuit of his object. He became gradually enamored of his peaceful, innocent, and industrious life, his humble retirement and total seclusion from the world. He felt no want. He had received no favor. He beheld the little store of the aged Nina daily increasing, and— while he experienced the sweet reward of constant employ, his heart bounded for the first time with the exalting consciousness of being useful to a fellow creature. He anticipated the future, however, with a feeling of melancholy. His uncertain destination occasionally employed his thoughts. Can I always remain thus, he would exclaim? Alas, no. Yet surely these are halcyon days, but still I have an unquenched sentiment in my soul that tells me this forever though in itself laudable, would be an inglorious life for the heir of Lordani. What, said I, the heir of Lordani is disgraced. He may be happy, he may be honored in the shade, but despised, condemned if he offers to emerge in the betraying light of day. No, no, Lordani, the world is no place for thee in thine own character. Never mayest thou appear among men. These reflections sometimes overwhelmed his mind with gloom. He had then no refuge but in redoubled activity, resolving to allow himself no leisure for useless anticipation of future fate. It happened, however, one morning, that the aged Nina complained of an unwanted sensation. Towards noon it amounted to indisposition, and Leonardo, whom she had ever called her son, assisted her to her bed, from which she was doomed never more to arise. Of this, in a few hours, the worthy creature became conscious. She felt undeniable symptoms of approaching disillusion, and knew them for what they were. "'Alas!' said she feebly to the youth Leonardo. "'I feel, my beloved, my second son, "'that I have not longed to survive my dear Hugo. "'Let me behold thy sweet face in the moment of death, 
and let me bless thee with my last breath. Leonardo was deeply affected. He beheld on the point of departing forever her who had admitted him unhesitatingly beneath her humble roof to share of her little comforts, to the disposition of her trifling all. True, the event had rewarded her kindness, but that was not the consideration of the moment, of her genuine hospitality. Could he then forsake her lonely pillow? No longer than to procure every assistance, every necessary that might contribute to her ease, or tend, perhaps, to revive the feeble embers, yet lingering of life. But vain were his attentions, vain his endeavors, ere long extinct became every hope. After some hours of painful watching by her bedside, during which she had not spoken, and her breath had been heard to fluctuate, she, in a low, almost inarticulate voice, desired Leonardo to raise her in his arms. He obeyed with tender anxiety. "'All I have is thine,' she murmured, making an effort to open her eyes and fix upon him her last look. No sooner had she beheld that ingenuous countenance than her wishes seemed fulfilled. Her head sunk heavy on his bosom, and she expired in his arms with the serenity of a child.' Great was the grief of Leonardo. He summoned her few friends and neighbors who occupied here and there a cottage on the mountain to perform the last sad offices for his humble but affectionate friend. And feeling now the inutility of remaining on the spot, he resolved to defer his departure only till he had seen her decently consigned to the earth. In a few days, therefore, Leonardo, dividing her slight possessions among those who had obeyed his call at her decease, and reserving to himself only a trifling sum of money, the produce of his own labor since he had resided beneath her roof, he left the simple cottage where he had passed some happy hours, and, furnished with a small stock of provisions, once more renewed his wanderings. Of shelter for the night he was no longer solicitous, for his late toil and regular healthful habits had so far increased his hardihood and vigor that he no longer shrunk at reposing in the open air. Nor would he, he resolved, while possessed of sufficient for half a meal, attempt to enter the habitation of a man. Night at length overtook him. He threw himself carelessly upon the earth and began to reflect. The vagueness of his own intentions, the desultoriousness of his mode of life, forcibly struck him. It is now two years and three months, thought he, since I left my native city of Venice, since I left the disgraced abode of my father, that dear, that tender father who so much loved me. Since that, I have been once accused of the most dreadful crimes, and driven with ignominy from the shelter to which I had no claim. Then have I been inured to poverty and toil, and earned my bread like the meanest peasant by the sweat of my brow. Now am I again an outcast on the wide expanse of creation, no friend, no home, nor a prospect of attaining bread for tomorrow's substance. Oh, mother, and all this for thee, he exclaimed, clasping his hands fervently together. Through thee I have endured all this. Now the probable fate of that mother, how his father had supported her loss, and the situation of his sister, with the thousand dear and tender recollections, pressed upon his mind. The fond wish of revisiting his home flashed across his mind, but scarcely at first would he admit the idea. Irresistibly, however, it hung around his heart. "'And why not, then?' said he at length, in an eager voice. "'Why not?' as he contemplated the alteration of his appearance. 
who in the present hardy Leonardo, robust by toil, and browned by the fierce rays of the midday sun, and habited, too, in the coarse costume of the humble peasant, shall trace the once luxurious heir of Lordani. Yes, I am determined, he pursued, starting on his feet. I may with safety, without danger of being known, once more revisit my home. I can satisfy my mind respecting my unfortunate family, and then take of it an eternal adieu. He walked rapidly a few steps, forgetting in the enthusiasm of the moment that it was night. At length he grew calm. Early in the morning, then, said he mentally. Meantime, here is my bed. Once more he cast himself upon the earth, and sleep stealing over him soon calmed the agitation of his mind. Prompt was the decision, and prompt ever the execution of Leonardo. Leaving, at early dawn, the mountains of Tuscany behind him, he pursued his journey with the most eager rapidity that his humble means would allow ever cautious that no one should suspect him for other than he appeared. Who can describe his sensations when he found himself even near the city of Venice? Yet he resolved not to enter it during the day, and when he arrived at Padua, determined to proceed as far as he could on foot, thinking by this means that it would be impossible for him to reach Venice before nightfall. Curbing his impatience, therefore, after taking some slight refreshment, he deliberately set out on his allotted task, but, notwithstanding that he walked, as he conceived, at a moderate pace, by the time he reached the extremity of the terra firma, he perceived the sun still far above the western hemisphere. He continued, therefore, slowly to wander along the borders of the lake, idly stopping to remark whatever villa or splendid domain attracted his eye, of which the Venetian nobility have many on the terra firma. At length, however, feeling somewhat weary, he threw himself upon the bed of the earth, to him no longer unfamiliar as such, and fell as usual into a train of thought. Tears involuntarily filled his eyes and coursed each other down his cheeks. He closed those eyes, filled as they were with tears, and ruminated over the sorrows of his youth. Ah, tears, painful as you were, as yet rising from an unpolluted heart, from a heart, though bursting with grief, yet unstained by guilt. Why, why must it so soon become changed, destroyed and plunged into an abyss of shame and infamy. Why art there doomed, Leonardo, to add another blot to the page which registers Lorena's crimes? Nature will often become exhausted by the intenseness of its own sensations. Leonardo sunk by degrees from keen feeling into a temporary insensibility. A soft sleep stole over his faculties, and he forgot for a time the unhappiness of his situation. While unconsciously he thus reposed, a female chanced to wander near the spot. She had quitted her house for the purpose of enjoying more fully the fresco of the evening, and to stroll along the banks of the lake. The young Leonardo, however, arrested her attention, and she softly approached to contemplate him. His hands were clasped over his head, and on his cheek, where the hand of health had planted her brown-red rose, the pearly gems of his tears still hung. His auburn hair sported in graceful curls about his forehead and temples, agitated by the passing breeze. His vermeil lips were half open and disclosed his polished teeth. His bosom, which he had uncovered to admit the refreshing air, remained disclosed, and contrasted by its snowy whiteness the animated hue of his complexion. Beautiful and fascinating, though in the simple garb of a peasant did the wondering female consider the youth before her. Struck with lively admiration, she knew not how to quit the spot, when an insect suddenly alighting on his cheek, he started and awaked, 
Somewhat confused, he hastily arose, for the female that met his eyes appeared to him supremely beautiful. Approaching him gently, and with a smile, she laid her hand upon his arm, and in a gentle voice said, "'You appear a stranger here, and though your dress bespeaks inferiority of situation, pardon me if I distrust what it seems meant to convey. Without therefore deeming me impertinently curious, allow me to inquire whither you intend to bend your course.' as the evening is, already far advanced, and I know not of any house near this that could yield you accommodation for the night. This was the first beautiful and attractive female, save the innocent Amamia, whose attraction too was of a nature wholly different to that of hers before him, who had ever addressed herself to the warm imagination of Leonardo. His cheeks became suffused with deepening blushes, and his eyes, which he longed to gaze upon her, were yet cast bashfully towards the earth. In a faltering voice he replied, while every consideration but of the object before him vanished from his mind. I have... No, I have not any particular destination for this night, Signora, but I have... I have it in contemplation where to bend my course soon. At least I am solicitous... He stopped, unable to proceed from a confusion of idea. Well, but then, in a voice of tender anxiety, answered Megalina Strozzi, for her it was who addressed the youth. If you are not absolutely decided, if you are not particularly desirous of proceeding further tonight, perhaps you will for the present dine to enter my villa and allow me the happiness of offering you a dwelling for the night. Leonardo raised his eyes and was about to reply. Come, I perceive you will not deny me, gaily resumed the fair Florentine, taking him lightly by the arm and leading him onwards. My house is but a small distance from hence, "'Look, you may behold it as you stand,' she added, painting with her finger to a small and beautiful edifice built in the form of a pavilion. "'Impossible, lovely signora, to refuse you anything,' said the youth, enthusiastic at her charms and the gracefulness of her manner. "'Impossible to refuse you anything.' The fair Florentine only smiled and proceeded with alacrity, as though apprehensive that the youth should retract. They soon reached the villa, and a smothered sigh as he entered it, was the last tribute paid to the memory of his neglected home. The character of Megalina Strozzi has already been so far revealed that to amplify upon it here, or to the excesses into which it perpetually hurried her, would be vain. Suffice to say that, enraptured with the novel graces of the young Leonardo, she spared no artifice or allurement to induce him to protract his stay beneath her roof. She devoted herself to fascinate and seduce him, and day after day contrived fresh causes to prevent his departure. By degrees, these artifices, as Megalina had hoped they would, became unnecessary. It was now him who forbore to press up the subject, who sought excuses to remain, and who constantly trembled, lest the necessity of departing should be pointed out to him. It was not with the beautiful Megalina, as with the profligate wife of Zappi, for though equally depraved herself, she knew better how to disguise, beneath an artificial delicacy and refinement, the tumultuous wishes of her heart. It was not vainly, then, that she sought to seduce the imagination and lure the senses of the youth. No, he had in his own high-wrought feelings, in his susceptible soul, powerful and treacherous advocates in her cause. He beheld her with a mixed sentiment of admiration and passion, far different to the sentiments with which he had regarded the young Amamia. Those he had entertained for her were innocent, peaceful, and refined. For Megalina, turbulent, painful, wild, her charms kindled his soul. 
Amamia's had filled it with a halcyon tenderness. His sensations for the one were like the burning heat of a fierce meridian sun, for the other like the gentle calmness of a summer eve. Megalina, who had only retired to the villa which she sat at presently occupied, with the intent to remain there for a few days, and that nearly on the account of a slight quarrel she had had with the Conte Berenza, wherein she had bitterly reproached him for the infrequency of his visits to her, now forgetting the cause of chagrin that induced her to leave Venice, found herself, from the delightful chance that had introduced Leonardo to her, inclined to protract her stay far beyond what she had originally intended. It so happened that about this time Berenza had recovered his beloved Victoria. The absence, therefore, of the fair Megalina remained not only unnoticed, but unknown. While she secretly congratulated herself upon the revenge she believed herself to be taking upon the indifference of Berenza towards her, Yet, indifferent as he was, the Florentine could not forget that she had loved him once with a passion almost equal to that which she now felt for Leonardo, and whether or not he still continued to repay her diminished regards with all the ardent gratitude she had the vanity to conceive her due for having once preferred him to all other men. She vowed in her heart that the hour in which she should discover in him a preference to another should be the last of his existence." Yet for her own conduct, she had no standard but her wishes. Inconstancy and duplicity towards him, from whom she presumed to require such implicit devotion, were esteemed as nothing. Her excesses, her irregularities, if she had ingenuity enough to conceal them from his knowledge, she considered perfectly allowable, and far from affording to Berenza a sufficient excuse for attaching himself elsewhere. With these sentiments, she gave unbounded latitude for her passion, for Leonardo, and to such an excess did it speedily arrive that she almost felt as if for him she could resign every other man. End of chapter 13 Read by Teresa Mayer of Shrewsbury Township, New Jersey